From the official radio network of the PRSA, WebmasterRadio.fm presents exclusive coverage of the annual Public Relations Society of America's International Conference. Welcome to the PRSA 2009 International Conference in San Diego. Bob Garfield is a columnist, critic, essayist, pundit, international lecturer, and broadcast personality. He has been a fixture on national public radio, initially as a correspondent on NPR's All Things Considered, and is now a co-host on the weekly Peabody Award-winning magazine program On The Media. He has been a contributing editor for the Washington Post magazine, Civilization, and the op-ed page of USA Today, and has also written for the New York Times, Playboy, Sports Illustrated, Wired, and many other publications. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Garfield. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I I just can't tell you what a delight it is for me to be the 17th or 18th person to stand before you here (laughs) this afternoon. And, and, um, you know, it's not just for the honor that this gig confers. You know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I am an inveterate runner uh, in the narrow sense that I ran one mile in 1973 and I'm still coughing shit up. And yet this conference has given me the opportunity to do five daily 10Ks between the South Tower and here. (laughs) So on behalf of myself, my wife, and my cardiovascular fitness, I thank you. Uh, Before I proceed, I I just want to ask you to do me the, the courtesy of please turning your cell phones on. Uh, You'll be needing them later, and in any event, I hope you'll be twittering this to everybody you know uh, as I speak. Uh, It's what I would do. It's how I'd handle the situation. Of course, I've seen this show. (laughs) Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, this is a presentation in two parts. The second part is about the art and science of listenomics, how marketers and all formerly top-down institutions must embrace digital tools to forge relationships with individuals to a degree unimaginable even a decade ago. It's about exploiting the connectivity of the web, but mainly, mainly it's about looking at individuals not as piggy banks or eyeballs or votes, but as stakeholders in your enterprise. So, yeah, that's the uh, gist of part two. Here's the gist of part one. And I say doomed only because the words totally and completely fucked didn't fit on the slide. As I've said, the intermediate future offers a land of milk and honey. But the thing about the future is, it doesn't happen till later, and at the moment we have to contend with the devastation being being wrought by the digital revolution. Okay, not not everything, everything. 
viruses will survive. <laughs> Cockroaches, C-SPAN, <laughs> No Limit Hold'em, Arianna Huffington, but everything mass, <laughs> everything mass is under threat of immediate, of imminent extinction. See, the digital revolution isn't some sort of like news magazine cover headline. It is an actual revolution yielding revolutionary changes, including, but not limited to, the disintegration of the media and marketing infrastructures that have worked in perfect symbiosis for almost four centuries. It has been so fantastic, and it is so over. Amid 23% uh, population growth in the past 20 years, U.S. newspaper circulation has dropped 20%. In the past year, scores of newspapers have either folded, gone online, or declared bankruptcy. Chicago's vast Tribune company was valued at $12 billion in the year 2000 when it took on debt to acquire the Times Mirror Company for more than eight point. Three billion dollars. So let me see. You got twelve billion. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now it's chapter eleven. And my God, the New York Times, the New York Times, to defray its crushing debt, it decided to sell off seventy-five percent of its shiny new uh, headquarters on Eighth Avenue to suspend its stock dividend to cut salaries across the board and to borrow at usurious rates $250 million from a Mexican oligarch called Carlos Slim, whom only a few months earlier the Times editorial page had denounced as a robber baron. You know, and if not Carlos Slim, who? Loanshark.com? Industry-wide? Revenues are at 1965 levels. On the plus side, thanks to the internet, newspapers have seen their total readership soar, and with every new set of eyeballs, they lose money. Why? Because long ago, newspapers based their online strategy on advertising, at which point traffic became the holy grail. This despite two structural facts of online life. One, nobody clicks on the ads ever because why would they? And two, the virtual infinite supply of online ad inventory will always depress the price that even the best publisher can fetch. And that's why Rupert Murdoch and others um, are now saying online content must be paid for. Sorry. Two late. You have trained us to think otherwise. The audience doesn't imagine that all cars want to be free or that all paper towels want to be free or that all toasters want to be free, but somehow it imagines that all content wants to be free. Now that is obviously an indefensible ethic, but moral high ground does not repay the creditors. Luckily, magazines are doing much better in exactly the way it's much better to have multiple sclerosis than Lou Gehrig's disease. <laughs> Newsstand sales, which is to say the profit engine of the industry, 
were down 12% in 2008, and that was off a very bad 2007, and 2009 has begun much, much worse, and of course, the shakeout is underway. In North America, 525 magazines folded in 2008. Another 200 have folded so far this year. But don't be tempted to dismiss this as the uh, toll of a down economic cycle. Ladies and gentlemen, this is structural. In March, Wenda Harris-Millard, who at the time was co-CEO of Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia, said, and I quote, advertising simply cannot support all the media out there. So, you know, hold that thought, okay? Meantime, I am happy to report that uh, TV Guide magazine, I, that was premature slide dilation, I apologize. Uh, TV Guide magazine did manage to avoid folding. It did manage to find new owners. And it sold its magazine to the new owners for $1. $1, which is one-third of the price that you pay for a copy of TV Guide at the newsstand. And in my opinion, the new owners overpaid. I can kind of see you squirming in your seats already, but you know, the fact is I don't believe you're quite suicidal enough yet. So let's do now turn to broadcast TV. Bernstein Research predicted a 20 to 30 percent drop in 2009 TV station ad revenue. It turns out that that prediction will be optimistic and uh, it is, it's trending far worse. Affiliate fees from networks have essentially disappeared and the values of local TV licenses have been cut in half or worse. Oh, and two of the four major networks, CBS and NBC, have publicly hinted that the days of distributing programming over the air via affiliates are numbered because of the numbers. According to Nielsen Media, in the last uh, reporting period, CBS's primetime audience was down 3%. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's the ratings leader. NBC down 14% and Fox almost 18%. Weirdly enough, the steady erosion of audience till now has allowed the networks to raise their ad prices on a cost per thousand basis because fragmentation has made any mass audience, even the incredible shrinking mass audience, more valuable. Networks have been able to gouge advertisers in exactly the same way that the last gas station before Death Valley can charge motorists nine bucks a gallon. The average price of reaching a thousand households with a 30-second spot in prime time has almost quadrupled since 1985. But that ratchet effect is over. What the law of diminishing returns could not influence the recession has. Now the advertiser exodus is underway as well. Three quarters of national advertisers slashed their 2009 TV budgets. The CPMs at the last summer's upfront finally went down. And that's why scripted dramas and sitcoms have all but disappeared, giving way to like five days a week of Jay Leno in prime time and I think like nine days a week of, of the biggest loser dancing with the former stars or whatever. 
And that is why the heads of both NBC and CBS have said that their networks may well just be cable channels before long. But just fair warning, fellas, cable has problems of its own. It is no more DVR-proof than broadcast, and it's also suffering from a sort of uh, distribution autoimmune disease where the body attacks itself. The very coax that the industry has been stringing for 50 years is now the pipe for broadband, which consumers increasingly are using to bypass pay cable entirely. Over the top, that's called. Uh, uh, now there are software apps like Boxy that aggregate all your video feeds onto one screen and allow you to feed them in turn right into your TV machine, which is what they mean by the term convergence. It's also what they mean by the term how to take revenge from the cable company that has been screwing you for 50 years. <laughs> because if you can watch TV programs on your actual TV with very few commercial uh, interruptions and no subscription, fee subscription fees to a cable middleman, why wouldn't you? I mean, at this point, I think you're beginning to get the picture. A gazillion dollar industry being brought to its knees by a tiny upstart, like Leonard Wiberly's cute little novel from 1955, The Mouse That Roared. See, it's a mouse. <laughs> Oh, my sides. <laughs> the mouse. <laughs> anyway, the Internet is obviously a revolutionary advance along the lines of fire, agriculture, the wheel, the printing press, gunpowder, electricity, radio, manned flight, antibiotics, atomic energy, and, in my opinion, Listerine breath strips. It is also the wealthiest repository of content ever known to man. So, no problem. All the players, content providers and advertisers, just change venues from the physical world to the digital one, right? And no, not right. As a medium to replace the old world order, the internet is utterly failing. And this is tragically simple. Zillions of web pages means zillions of opportunities for advertising inventory, a nearly infinite supply of advertising inventory, which, of course, drives prices down, 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 online and off. A handful of websites are self-sustaining based on ad sales. The other 99.99999% are not. And thanks to that pesky law of supply and demand, never will be. I mean, this supposes uh, that anyone ever clicks on an online ad, which in fact, of course, nobody ever does, ever, at least not on purpose. <laughs> and why does Joe Laptop avoid banner ads? For the same reason he installs spam filters and fast forwards past the commercials on his TiVo. What? <laughs> Look, I know that's a vulgar slide, 
but it is my favorite slide ever. <laughs> anyway, this, uh, this behavior naturally gives advertisers pause. I mean, consider Twitter uh, and Facebook and YouTube, which among them have altered human behavior on a grand scale. Two and a half years ago, Google paid $1.65 billion for YouTube. And the payoff last year, about $90 million in ad revenue, which looks, you know, sort of okay until you factor in Google's bandwidth bill of about $700 million and who knows what ongoing liability for intellectual property litigation. Facebook, with a theoretical valuation in the billions, had 2008 revenue estimated at 300 million, and Twitter had zip. Mass media and mass marketing have been a mutually sustaining yin and yang for centuries, but they are flying apart, never to be rejoined. The symbiosis simply doesn't work in a micro world. Now, yeah, the audience is bigger than ever. I got that. But, I mean, if I had a dollar or ownership of TV Guide magazine, for every time I heard somebody say that, I mean, where is this magical solution supposed to come from? Advertising doesn't work. Although I like to think there may be some future in micropayments, the people who understand micropayments say, yeah, great, Bob, not in your lifetime. So what exactly does that leave us as a sustainable business model? Ladies and gentlemen, it leaves nothing. This single depressing truth will change your media environment in dramatic ways. It will change the marketing industry in mellow, dramatic ways. Culturally improbable as this may sound, the days of Madison Avenue dictating messages to the drones are at an end. Which means, if you were looking for someone really uh, in jeopardy from the chaos scenario, it might be someone who makes a living in the media, criticizing the media and TV commercials yeah. <laughs> Did I say you were doomed? <laughs> I stand corrected. So how to get undoomed? For me, not so easy. My plan B is to be a buzzard feeding on the bloated corpses of your industries. <laughs> you at least have dignified options. In fact, I must say, as PR professionals, you are uniquely situated not only to survive, but thrive in a micro world. The bad news is there will be fewer and fewer mass venues to land a big placement. The good news is there are millions and millions of other places, and your clients will depend on you to reach them. But like every other institution of the mass world, you have to begin with a fundamental change in your culture and your business practices, and that begins for starters, shut up and listen. Not to me, but to the group formerly known as the customers or the audience or the electorate. Every institution that has formerly dictated from the top down must begin treating its constituencies not as the anonymous hoi polloi, but as genuine 
stakeholders, and partners. Now, I know those are buzzwords you throw around all the time, like, you know, paradigm shift and leverage and crap like that. But, but what you need to do is actually internalize them and make them real. I mean, for one thing, those folks aren't listening to you anyway. They're listening to each other talk about you. And they're using your products, your brand names, your iconography, your slogans, your trademarks, your designs, your goodwill, your programs, all of it as if it belonged to them. Which, in a way, it does, because haven't you, you know, cumulatively spent billions of dollars and about 50 years trying to persuade them of just that? So, first of all, you better not piss them off. In a connected world, they have far more sway over you than you have over them. But not only do they have a lot to say, they have a, an endless, priceless reserve of things to offer, which I'll detail later. But how to exploit these possibilities? The process begins with simply accepting the fact that you are not in control of your message. The very first baby step in what I call the art and science of listenomics. Let's just think about Lego briefly. For 50 years, they made colorful plastic bricks. If you're a parent, at one point or another, at 3 o'clock in the morning, you have had one of these things impaled in the sole of your foot. <laughs> Lego decided what to make them of, in what colors, what packaging. They even dictated the designs of what you could build. So how odd that in a world of Warcraft 21st century, they should see their business beginning to slide. So in an effort to adapt to the digital age, Lego introduced mind storms, uh, which enabled kids to build their own robotic mechanical devices. Uh, now, the problem was that the technology was kind of complicated, that things were expensive, and the sales to the target audience of teenagers were kind of slow. But, but a market did form around Mindstorms. Not young teens, but adult total geekazoids who <laughs> populated chat rooms and blogs and other social networks comparing notes about Mindstorms. So when about five years ago Lego uh, began to revamp the product, it recruited an ad hoc Mindstorms users panel. Not as some sort of like one-off focus group, but as actual co-designers of the brand's second product generation. These pitiful, pitiful dweebs <laughs> flew to Billund, Denmark at their own expense. And by the way, Billund, Denmark is a place where you ever get the opportunity to visit. You should not. And they worked there with Lego designers, and then when they, they left town, continued their collaboration online. For 14 months, these volunteers reinvented the brand, which is now a soaring success. But not just because customers were designers, they were also Mindstorm's marketers. These folks were zealous before being recruited. Afterwards, in those same social networks, they were indefatigable evangelists for the new line. And Mindstorms has become the most profitable line in Lego corporate history. So uh, let's just take a look at some fly swatters and other crap. <laughs> Excuse me. 
Excuse me. Yeah. Hello? Yes. Hi, Grace. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Car dealer. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay, yeah. Yes, ma'am. All right, thank you so much. Bye. God damn kids. My car is in the shop. Uh, I get one of those calls every single day. My car has been in the shop since early March. That's Grace. You have a kind of a rapport. Every day she calls me and tells me the same lie. Which gets me back to y'all. Oh, <laughs> um, that's, a, yeah, that's a stupid joke. Although it occurs to me, do you know what public relations has in common with, with table linens? They're both the products of flax. It's a pun. Anyway. You could make a very good argument that, uh, but for one missing factor, advertising specialties, try to turn this off, thought I'd done that earlier. Uh, advertising specialties are the finest advertising medium of all. They're cheap to produce, uh, to the user, free of charge, often quite handy, usually at hand, and always bearing a reminder of whom you can thank when, say, smashing a flying insect to a gooey pulp. The one thing they lack, obviously, is mass. In fact, one reason they are so piteously déclassé, so at the very bottom of the advertising food chain, is that they are the ultimate micro-proposition. I mean, I gotta tell you, no ad guy ever got laid going into a bar and saying to some chick, you know, the uh, Big K Flyswatter? That was me. I mean, it never happens. But what if digital technology could exploit all the benefits of advertising specialties and inject them in a Web 2.0 environment? Then you would have something, would you not? I give you branded widgets, the refrigerator magnets of the digital age. Widgets are transportable mini software apps like uh, that UPS Mocha Teletubby up in the left-hand corner that tracks your shipments from your desktop. Or the, the uh, Southwest Ding widget. It, uh, it just sits there on your desktop or your Facebook page or whatever until a special fare is offered on a route that you've specified. And then it goes ding. And they sold a lot of airfares that way. In terms of the convergence of brandedness with Web 2.0 technology, the widget may not necessarily be the holy grail, but it's pretty grailish. Because the link between the marketer and the consumer is literal and direct, and along its path, data on behavior, preference, and intention is left at every step. So uh, if you'll permit me, please allow me to show you some stirring portraits of the man who quietly, heroically, Mine the fuel for our way of life. Miners literally producing the fuel of the old economy. Also, the new economy, which runs not on coal, but on data. 
An obvious example, Amazon.com. Not only does Amazon offer books and like electric blankets and fruit baskets and what all, it's famously figured out how to crunch the numbers to recommend to you, the book or fruit basket or electric blanket buyer, what product you're apt to enjoy next. The secret is something called collaborative filtering, the same kind of data mining that lets Match.com find your perfect mate and Netflix suggest what movie you should rent. The algorithms are complex, but the principle is very simple. Based on your selections and product ratings, and the selections and product ratings, ratings of others who have made choices similar to yours, it is very easy to predict whether you'll like products that you may not even have been familiar with. with. In other words, it is an upsell engine. Uh, in the ABCs of data mining, we can call collaborative filtering A for associative, search would be C for contextual, and then in the middle is B for behavioral targeting, which may be the most controversial of the three. It's the art of tracking the web activity of individuals, or at least individual internet browsers, and correlating it with online purchasing behavior. Now this sometimes yields the obvious. You know, people who search for camera equipment sites often do buy cameras. But the genius behind behavioral targeting is its ability to divine, once again, the less than obvious. For instance, that's the wrong direction. Yeah, uh, I don't know, people shopping for flat pan panel TVs? Yeah, yeah, and no. I mean, it, it is one of the correlations on a list of 22 correlations put together by the behavioral marketing firm Takoda. People shopping for flat panels TVs was the 22nd on the list of, of uh, perfect correlations. Uh, and to get this list, it scrutinized not just a small sample and extrapolated it, but looked at 400 some millions and millions of internet uh, experiences over 400 some criteria. Media choices, last site visited, search terms, and so forth. And then it came up with the list of what matched. And the number one correlation for flat panel TV purchase? Duh. <laughs> uh, it turns out that this is explained by soldiers, sailors, and airmen with no housing expenses, uh, no need for a car, a lot of discretionary income, a lot of time on their hands, and a total video game Jones. But why ask why? The whole point of data mining is to take us to a realm beyond obviousness and common sense. The data speak for themselves. Now obviously there are privacy issues attached to that kind of thing. I mean the idea of third parties tracking us around the web kinda tends to freak people out. But look, privacy in 2009 is not an absolute. It is increasingly a commodity, one that celebrities trade for fame, uh, travelers trade for security, and you all trade every week at the checkout counter for a few cents off on a, you know, a can of clam chowder or whatever. And to me, the trade-off for getting targeted messaging versus utterly useless spam is worth letting Google's computers know that my IP address 
maybe clicks every so often on, you know, something gross like porn or gambling sites or foxnews.com. But it's not all about data, it's also about connectivity. I, I want to move on to the single most important aspect of Web 2.0 and one that absolutely should concern this audience. And it begins with someone who for the moment I just choose not to name. Let us consider J-O-N. Uh, this subject was an incredibly charismatic guy who the word of mouth mavens call an influencer. He was a bit of a drifter, kind of a an oddball, but when he spoke, people listened. Two of the people who listened to him, um, we'll call them Paulie and Pete, not only were in his thrall, they talked him up obsessively to everybody, including some kind of extravagant claims. You know those, those urgent urban legends about like pop rocks and gerbils, stolen kidneys? They are nothing, nothing compared to the eye-openers whispered about J-O-N. But those highly improbable yarns somehow captured people's imaginations and were passed from one listener to another to another. Even his death did nothing to diminish his popularity. On the contrary, it only burnished his reputation and validated his worldview. In time, even the most bizarre and supernatural details of his legend were not only spread far and wide, but accepted at face value, country to country, continent to continent. That Jesus of Nazareth, his word of mouth was simply outstanding. With no advertising budget whatsoever, his brand soon swept the globe. Today, 33% market share. and 2.1 billion customers. Build a better God, and the world will beat a path to your door. And on that subject, this is the 21st century, and there is a new deity to reckon with. Is Google God? I really can't say, but I do know it is omnipotent and omnipresent. And it is so by virtue of being the ultimate digital expression of word of mouth. What is the Google algorithm, after all, but the crediting of special value to other people's choices? When you type in a search term, the results you see are determined not just by the contextual relevance to what you've asked for, but also by how many others have linked to those pages. And believe me, this God giveth, and this God taketh away. Youch. But you can see how in the digital age, word of mouth is no longer some unpredictable adjunct to the glorious efficiencies of mass media and mass marketing. On the contrary, as those mass models collapse, word of mouth is increasingly at the heart of spreading good or bad news. The internet is a word of mouth machine. Sure, binary code is what makes it all work, but the fuel is the human instinct to share information, whether via Google, in social networks like Facebook and MySpace, blogs, Craigslist, Angie's List, Twitter, Dig, and so on. It can be harsh, it can be swift, and it can be powerful. 
Here's a uh, little video I, I threw together just to, you know, bring an arrogant, tone-deaf, blundering $50 billion corporation to its knees. They say you go through five stages. No. Denial. No, no, no. This can't be happening. Anger. You are not helping me! Ah! Bargaining. Just give me a sign that someone's listening. Just one sign that someone's there. Depression. Thanks for holding. Your call is important to us. Customer service representative. But acceptance? Or my dead body. Comcast must die! Yes, I, an outsider, essentially blackmailed or blogmailed Comcast into using an outside website called ComcastMustDie.com as a customer relations service of last resort. Now, my little jihad hasn't completely eradicated the toxic nightmare that is Comcast customer service, but it has certainly chastened the company and pushed it toward, at least, the, the correct path. Ladies and gentlemen, in a connected world, the herd will be heard. But the most notable thing about the Comcast Must Die exercise was the typical response from those who aired their grievances on the website and then were utterly flabbergasted to have the com company actually reach out to them with a resolution, usually within 24 hours. They utterly changed their minds about Comcast and no doubt told everyone they knew. So, you know, why would a company wait to be pilloried online? Isn't it better to invite the disgruntled to come at you in all their fury? Then, when you attend to their issues, you use their energy to flip them. It's called jujitsu. I mean, briefly consider this, um, this uh, British company called National Express. It's a bus line, and it's very cheap compared to air travel, but uh, has a kind of a poor reputation for customer service in the sense that anybody who was on National Express once never went on it again. A uh, little customer retention issue. So now on every single National Express bus window, there's a little sticker and uh, with instructions for riders with a complaint to uh, text toll-free whatever their, their issue is. It's some special number. The texts are then scanned by computers equipped with artificial intelligence, and two things happen. One, uh, you're texted back with the name of a live human being who you may speak to. And secondly, uh, another live human being who is ultimately responsible for fixing the problem is dispatched, put on the case, so that at your very next depot, someone is there to fix the problem, whether it's a uh, broken seat recliner or a stopped up toilet or a non-functioning window, surly driver, whatever. In this way, not only do the irritated passengers never get an opportunity to become irate passengers, they're often so delighted at the company's attentiveness that they become vocal advocates for National Express, evangelists, in other words. It starts within the user's community and radiates outwards, which is why, as I finally come to the end here, I commend you to the following website.
not to peddle books necessarily. Although, if you're buying, I'm selling. Because then I get money to buy things with. Uh, But the chaosscenario.net is set up to be a community, a crossroads, a news hub, a forum for all things chaos. I urge you to be a frequent visitor. I also urge you to get on all your social networks, Twitter, MySpace, whatever, and start talking about what you heard today. The chaos scenario is being published according to the very Lysonomics principles espoused in the book. If I'm right in what I'm preaching, chaos will be on everybody's lips. If I am wrong, I'll have to take President Obama's advice and retrain. Um, probably in the burgeoning field of elder care. But like everyone else, everything else in the chaos scenario, scenario, ladies and gentlemen, the power is in your hands. And on that point, I would like to take one final opportunity to give you an opportunity. As I said earlier, unlike the other industries um, afflicted by chaos, PR is in the catbird seat. Your services are not going to be less important in a micro world. They will be more important. You will have to adjust to your practices, but you are uniquely positioned to assist marketers and other institutions in connecting with their constituencies. And right this minute, I am going to give you a way to prove that. That's not right. Today, at the chaosscenario.net, I will begin rousing a mob. It will begin with the promise that many people, thousands or more, will converge at a single moment in the coming weeks to do something good for others. The details are going to be parceled out bit by bit to ratchet up the drama and excitement. And in time, I hope to coalesce many such mobs for acts of philanthropy, charity, support of various kinds under various circumstances, all more or less at the spur of the moment. But the initial effort will be quite basic, uh, seeking contributions for a charitable foundation created in the memory of two extraordinarily charitable young men who were killed this summer in a highway chain reaction collision. The idea is that through the chaosscenario.net website and as of tomorrow through the virtuous, through virtuousmob.com, uh, the idea will be to rally strangers into action entirely via Twitter, Facebook, and the rest of the social web. I ask you, I challenge you individually and as representatives of your own companies to get involved, to use your own social networks, but also to help me come up with new channels, new strategies, whatever it takes to drive tens of thousands of people to make a very small donation on the same day. Because if it works once for this small foundation, which itself, by the way, is dedicated to a culture of charity, it will work for anything and everything. So drop everything and get on board. You will be creating and be part of history itself. And by the way, I'm testing you on this because I've benchmarked the uh, traffic at the chaosscenario.net and of course, as of tomorrow, the virtuous mob. 
uh, and I've also benchmarked my Google rating, uh, not Google rating, uh, Amazon ranking and various other ways to, to see how much your work will generate attention for the virtuous mom. I cannot emphasize enough how important this effort can be, not only to this charitable foundation, but to your businesses. And I thank you in advance. I, I also wish to thank all the brilliant pro bono professionals who, dis who dedicated their efforts to spreading the word of chaos. And of course, ladies and gentlemen, for your generous attention, once again, I thank you. Thank you for listening to exclusive coverage of the annual Public Relations Society of America's International Conference, only on webmasterradio.fm. This podcast is presented by the Public Relations Society of America at webmasterradio.fm. It may not be reproduced, reused, or rebroadcasted without prior consent of the Public Relations Society of America.